Welcome to this, the final session of our all day net zero conference and particular congratulations to all of you who have made it through every session. That's an impressive achievement, but I hope you'll agree with me. That this has been an absolutely fascinating day out. Obviously, the context that we've been discussing net zero in is the imminent uh, conference of the parties that the UK will host in Glasgow at the end of the year. And uh, to discuss how we might make a success of that, we're going to be joined today by an absolutely stellar panel of uh, superstars of the uh, COP process. Between them, we've been trying to work out who's been at this for longest, but suffice to say that we have some genuine veterans. You may have heard Amber Rudd refer to Pete Betts, who will be joining us as uh, as a uh, conference superstar. Anyway, just to remind you, uh, this event is on the record. We're live tweeting from at IFG events <coughs> using the hashtag IFG Net Zero. Do tweet along. Uh, we have a video and sound recording be made available later for those who aren't watching now. And of course, I would like to thank again our sponsors of this one day conference, the Association of British Insurers, the Association for Project Management, Imperial College London's Transition to Zero Pollution Initiative and Novo Nordisk. This is absolutely brilliant that they have sponsored this day and enabled us to bring this to you. So I'm going to rapidly move on to introduce my panel. My panel today is uh, Pete Betts, Visiting Professor in Practice at LSE Grantham Research Institute, Associate Fellow at Chatham House, but absolutely critically a veteran of many climate conferences and former EU lead negotiator. Yes, Pete is from the UK, but he used to play a very big role in the EU um, and was a former colleague of mine at DEFRA. Then I'm joined by Carsten Sach, lead climate negotiator for Germany and director general international European policy, climate policy in the German Federal Ministry for Environment, Nature, Conservation and Nuclear Safety, which actually makes the names we look, we give our departments look quite snappy. Uh, third, and I'm very, very grateful to him for staying up so late, is Joseph Teo, Chief Negotiator for Climate Change for Singapore, former, de former Deputy Permanent Representative for Singapore to the United Nations. And last but not least, we have Jakob Werksman, Principal Advisor, the Directorate General for Climate Action in the European Commission. So I'm going to kick off with a pretty simple question to each of them. Let's go to Carsten first. What for Germany would make a successful COP in November? What are you looking to achieve there? I think at the COP and uh, at the run up to the COP, we need enhanced ambition on mitigation. That means that we get uh, NDCs which are more in line with uh, net zero commitments. We need uh, enhanced additional adaptation action and uh, on climate finance as well. Next to that, we have uh, a real negotiation agenda. Uh, first, we need to finalize uh, those issues which we haven't finalized the fine print of Paris on, in particular so-called Article 6, which is market mechanisms. But also we have transparency rules, which are key, only things which can be reported, measured and be transparent will be done politically. 
there are issues on, on when we do that, the acronym common timeframes. Uh, uh, of course, uh, we had a target to deliver climate finance by 2020. Now we have to start the process for the future up to 2025. Uh, and last but not least, I think it is important uh, uh, that uh, we implement also issues around the global goal of adaptation. So action, coherence with very good long-term statements and commitments we got, but uh, politics is happening now, investments are taking now, and I think that's uh, uh, the measure for success of the COP. I forgot to say, please post questions uh, in the uh, Q&A. Uh, if you could make them short, that would be great because it'd be easier to get through many of them and to identify the really interesting ones. And if you see someone asking a question that's very similar, not the same, but very similar to the one you would ask, please upvote it rather than uh, rather than putting your own question, because that means we can focus on the issues that everybody thinks really interesting rather than wade through streams of very similar questions. So please get upvoting for what you want to ask. I just want to ask Carsten before I move on to, to Joseph for the same question. As you talked about level of ambition in the NDCs, people obviously had to put in their NDCs at the end of the year. You know, what did you think of the sort of efforts that came in? Did you think they were sort of getting close? We just needed to up the ambition across the board, or were there some some areas where you were distinctly worried about a lack of ambition? So far, we have seen. Uh, only a few NDCs uh, of major uh, economies and major emitters. The EU has put forward uh, its NDC at the end of last year, but we are waiting uh, a new one, for example, from US or China and other important players. And uh, I think uh, what public ask us to do is uh, bring these NDCs into a plausible trajectory and line with a lot of very impressive net zero commitments we have seen uh, approaching us uh, at the last time. Of course, UK put forward uh, also a very good NDC, but uh, really, so probably the geopolitics is better this year than it, uh, it was uh, in November last year. So let's take the opportunity uh, uh, to mobilize for good NDCs uh, towards Glasgow. OK, that's a, that's a good start. Joseph, turning to you, you know, Singapore have a very similar agenda to that set out by Carsten, or does it want to see something something quite different? Obviously, Singapore is also sort of climate vulnerable as well as uh, as well as a significant uh, significant emitter. Joseph, thank you, Jill. And uh, good afternoon to all of you. It's past midnight here, so <laughs> forgive me if I'm a little bit incoherent. But anyway, listening to Carson, uh, a lot of what a lot of what he said, uh, I would sort of echo and support as well. Um, but I would just start off uh, by saying how happy I am to be part of this panel. Uh, probably the only non-European, or I'm the, probably the non only non-European participant here and also from a very small country compared to the rest of those who are lined up today. So I'll start off by saying that uh, COP26 really uh, with, with US rejoining the Paris Agreement gives us an opportunity to 
strengthen the multilateral framework of cooperation under the UNFCCC. So for a small country like Singapore, who is often a price taker and who have to take things as they are, we depend on a strong, uh, robust outcome internationally to move on climate change. And so for COP, uh, like Carson, we feel that COP has to deliver on a couple of things. First and foremost is it has to deliver on ambition. Uh, 2020 was supposed to be a year for climate action, uh, where parties were due to submit enhanced updated NDCs and LDCs um, as set out in the Paris Agreement. It is important for parties to implement these decisions as the effectiveness of the multilateral process rests on this. I cannot emphasize that point more. Now, Singapore submitted its NDC and LEDs in March 2020 at the height of the COVID. And we did so because we wanted to demonstrate to both our own citizens as well as to the international community that we were committed to supporting global climate action. Uh, by our count, and we have I've checked uh, just earlier, 29 countries have submitted their LEDs and 40 countries representing, I think, 31 or 30, 31.6 or so globe, of global emissions have submitted their NDCs. We hope that others, and as Carson said, particularly the major emitters will submit their NDCs and LEDs by COP. Now, COP would need to show that parties' collective actions are helping to narrow the emissions gap. I think that's very important, particularly at this time in COVID. The second important thing that COP needs to do is to put forward a strong package uh, of support for developing countries, particularly at this critical time where many developing countries are facing the twin challenges of COVID, dealing with COVID, as well as the challenges of, of climate change, which is and which both of them are impacting lives and livelihoods. Um, so of note, COP26 would need to demonstratively show that parties are making good on their climate finance commitments under the Convention and Paris Agreement. The third thing that COP would need to do to show that parties are following through with the mandates under the Paris Agreement. So Carson has mentioned some of those, Article 6, of course, on carbon markets. Uh, we have to deliver on um, the enhanced transparency framework. Now for a bottom-up system like the of NDCs, climate pledges, we need a robust transparency framework and we need to complete uh, what might seem like a simple task of common reporting tables and format, but these will help to build confidence in the system. Um, and of course, we need to do other things, complete the Paris architecture. We need the compliance mechanism and framework to be set up. We need uh, to build the foundations for the ambition uh, cycle under the Paris Agreement, and all of this have to be done by COP. And lastly, of course, we need COP also to galvanize climate action by all. And under the Paris framework, we have various uh, uh, programs. We have the Marrakesh Partnership for Global Climate Action. The UK presidency have, have launched the Race to Zero and Race to Resilience campaigns. 
uh, there are five teams of priorities that the UK government have, have identified. I think we need to work on these five. And for a small country like Singapore, we have very limited options for, for to access renewable energy. One of the things we're looking at is clean energy uh, and how we can form an alliance, a partnership of different stakeholders, academia, governments, businesses coming together, working on pilots, trying to drive costs down so that we can get uh, action on the ground. I think I'll stop there. Uh, for someone who's uh, supposed to be sleepy, I think I've gone on for too long. So thank you for your patience. So sorry, Joseph, we'll let you let you get back to sleep. Uh, but not yet, not yet. Stay awake with us till the end of this session. Uh, Jakob, I want to come to you from an EU perspective. Uh, what are you looking to achieve? Because obviously Italy's got a role as well in the COP run-up uh, as an EU member state. Need to work closely with the UK as a recently departed member state. Uh, you know, is there good working going on between the EU and the UK in a common endeavour in delivering for this COP? Well, thank, thanks, Jill. Well, I, I don't think it will surprise um, the, the uh, people who have joined the meeting that um, the EU's expectations are very much aligned with, with Germany as a member state. Um, it may surprise them more how much our expectations are aligned with, with Singapore and continue to be aligned with the UK. Um, but it's this kind of progressive coalition of countries, North and South, um, that has been driving ambition in the international negotiations for, for decades now. And, and I think we will still look to them for support in what um, we could refer to as, as one of the two tracks that Carson mentioned, which is the, the track on the, on the diplomacy of, of raising ambition. Uh, and as, as Joseph indicated and Carson indicated, this isn't just about raising ambition in terms of cutting emissions. It's also about delivering the finance to support particularly the poorer and more vulnerable countries in cutting their emissions. But also very importantly, it's about raising our ambition about uh, increasing and enhancing resilience and preparing for the impacts of climate change um, everywhere, but in particular, again, amongst the poor and the vulnerable countries. So the, the politics and the diplomacy of ambition has to cover all three of those dimensions if we're going to create the right atmosphere uh, in, uh, in, in Glasgow to, to complete uh, the second track, which is the track of the, of the technical negotiations. Um, but sticking to that first track, uh, first and foremost, um, we, of course, will be looking to the UK, um, not just as a, a member state that that left with a, an excellent track record on, on climate uh, uh, ambition and climate diplomacy, but also is now serving this very important role as the, as the COP presidency to provide us leadership. Um, they will be doing that not just as COP presidency, but also as leading the G7. Um, that G7 will be the core of the countries that we have these expectations of in terms of raising ambition but also working together with Italy, not just as a, a partner in designing the COP, but as leading the G20 this year, uh, which is the broader set of major uh, emitters, major economies that also will have to um, meet our expectations of committing to net zero and following through with, uh, with NDCs and with those, um, those long-term emissions, develop, uh, emissions reductions development strategies that, uh, that Joseph uh, mentioned. So there's a lot that's aligning well, I think, with the, with the global politics to deliver in Glasgow. Um, the challenges, and I, I think that we, we learned this from last year, but it's still very much in front of us, is 
thinking about how we can build this momentum in a context where we won't be able to, to meet uh, and, and to hold meetings uh, of, the, of, the, um, of the kind that we've become used to in this process. Um, multilateralism, as we've become used to with COPs, that draw together literally tens of thousands of party representatives and beyond that in terms of civil society and the private sector, it's very hard to imagine how we're going to build a similar kind of meeting even by the end of, uh, of this year. And so building the confidence amongst ourselves and with our negotiating partners that we can still deliver with regard to the diplomacy of ambition, but also with regard to the negotiations on the, the technical aspects of the completion of the design of the Paris Agreement is going to be a very big challenge. Um, we've heard from um, the Executive Secretary of the Climate Change Secretariat, but also from the, the Secretary General of the, of the UN as well, um, that we can't expect to meet physically, probably not before Glasgow, and yet the international community, the world expects us uh, to deliver on, uh, on these negotiations. Um, so a, a lot of work needs to be done to build confidence uh, that uh, that we can do that uh, and that's addressing things as basic as uh, access to broadband communications for all negotiators around the world dealing with differences in time zone um, such as uh, <laughs> we're asking uh, Joseph to to to, uh, to to compromise on today but think about a group like the G77 with uh, with country members around the world that still need to coordinate uh, and very importantly engaging civil society uh, making sure that that pressure is there uh, from from activists, from committed corporate uh, uh, members of the corporate sector, and from from the, the press and the media as well to keep the pressure on us. So, a uh, lot of, of reasons for hope, but also very significant logistic and uh, logistical and, and political challenges as well. Thanks. Uh, I'm, I want to I want to raise some of that with Pete, but Jakob. But just before I get to you, we've got a question from Stanley Johnson from the Conservative Environment Network. Um, a relation, I think, of the Prime Minister. Um, and he's just asking about the lack of a formal framework for sort of EU-UK uh, cooperation on, you know, foreign and security policy more generally in the trade and cooperation agreement. Is that lack of a sort of formal structure getting in the way of COP26 preparations or actually it's all so well established that that doesn't really make that much of a difference? Well, I mean, in terms of, um, of of the basic relationship that we agreed to at the end of Brexit, I mean, climate the commitment to climate change was was core, I think, to both partners. Uh, and so, uh, the the idea that we will maintain standards and and continue to hold ourselves, hold each other to high standards of, of climate action is is embedded in that post Brexit uh, relationship. And I think that will that will re remain uh, the the core of the relationship as as we as we uh, as we move forward. Um, how we interact uh, in the international space in the post-Brexit period, we're, we're kind of on hold at the moment because of the UK's uh, additional responsibilities as a COP president. That's the primary way in which we're interacting with them in a very constructive and positive way. Um, beyond that, it, it's going to be interesting to see how things play out because, of course, uh, international negotiations typically work through these, these groupings of countries of which the EU is one. Uh, of which uh, the balance of the uh, Western European and others group tends to be represented by the umbrella group. Uh, there's another grouping called the um, uh, environment includes 
uh, some European countries, Norway and Switzerland as well. So I think that's still something that we'll have to work out in terms of a structure for our engagement in, in multilateral processes like the Paris Agreement. But that will come after uh, the, the, uh, the UK um, re resigns and steps away from its, its role as, uh, as COP presidency. At the moment, um, we're working very, very closely and constructively in that context with the UK. Brilliant, thanks. So, Pete, uh, I wanted to come to you. Um, Jakob uh, pointed to the sort of fact this is a very different sort of run up to the COP. It's already been delayed a year, uh, although Alex Sharma seems to be doing some personal diplomacy uh, as currently in Egypt, according to at least his Twitter feed. Um, you can't meet sort of in the same way. The COP itself might be different. So. You know, where are things compared to where they might have been? We seem to have, we've got an extra year, but obviously that's there's limited bandwidth because of COVID. Uh, how is the sort of prep, how are the preparations going? How is it looking uh, looking with nine months to go? Thanks, Jill. And it's a great, great pleasure and honour to be on this panel. Um, so I worked with uh, Carson and Jake for many, many years and EU has been a huge leader and they have personally on, on climate for for 30 years. And of course, I also know Joseph. Uh, he says Singapore's a small country. There's a country that's always punched <laughs> above its weight. It's Singapore. Very high quality uh, diplomats and officials always from Singapore. So, um, I mean, it won't surprise anyone that I agree with almost everything I've heard. So I, I, I would say, you know, we're, we're not in too bad a place for the COP. Let me pull out two things which I think are going well and three things which feel like challenges to me. So, you know, the first thing, you know, what's well, first thing's going well is, you know, actually, obviously COVID is an unmitigated disaster, but the delay to the COP purely in terms of the climate dynamics was, 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 was I think helpful, even though COVID is, I'm not, is an unmitigated disaster because it, it essentially pushed um, the COP beyond the US election. So if you look at the prospects for the COP, for raising ambition of 2030 targets, they're enormously greater now than they would have been had we had the COP last November. So we've got a, a US president, the US will have to put a serious uh, offer of emission reductions on the table. The other huge thing that happened was that President Xi announced, you know, we all, you know, I, I went on lots of panels like this and you know assured the world that this wasn't going to happen this year <laughs> it happened and president xi announced a net zero goal for china in for 2060 uh clearly we need to still see the number for china for 2030 that's key it matters more than anything else because of the sheer scale of china but those you know those two developments are hugely significant we also of course as, as others have said had a, a very ambitious uh, EU target, you know, I, if you told me six months ago or even a year ago that the EU would go to 55, not just to 50, I wouldn't have expected that. And I would say the UK target is also extremely ambitious. So that's one good thing. The, poli the politics of climate look not too bad. Uh, the other really good thing is the real economy. I mean, the real economy and others touched on this is, you know, falling prices of, re of, of uh, re renewable energy, of, of electric vehicles relative to, to fossil fuel alternatives, big finance moving into uh, low carbon in a big way. So this huge shift in the real economy, which I think the, the UK government is doing quite a good job to catalyze and, and try and drive through people like Mark Carney and Nigel Topping, the champion and so on. So there's a couple of big good things there, as it were. Some challenges and others have touched on this. I think COVID 
is a challenge in a, in a number of respects. You might have expected uh, COVID to push climate right off the political agenda, but it hasn't. It's almost it's almost as if the sort of zeitgeist is to focus more on global public goods, but at the same time, it's having big impacts around the world, in, including in developing world where you know um, not just the health impacts which are bad enough, but the economic fallout. Uh, a lot of anger about the sense that they're being left behind. And in that context, you know, developed countries not, for some good reasons, for some not so good reasons, not meeting their, their public finance targets. I think all these things are, are issues which is cast, which all the panelists said, you know, need to be addressed. Debt burdens rising in these countries. Uh, if that could be addressed, it needs China. China is the biggest creditor nation. Are they up for it? So that's that's what and of course you know not holding meetings in 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 person is a challenge so covid is one challenge second challenge the geopolitics are quite brittle us china you know it looks like they they might try and cooperate on on climate but even while the wider relationship is more competitive but there are clearly some risks there even the eu and china the relationship is a bit scratchier than it was i think the, the us will want to work closely with europe and the eu with china uh, I do. I do hope we. I think the, the on EU UK. I think our interests are utterly aligned, and I really hope that we continue to work as closely together for shared objectives in the future as we have in the past. And then finally, the third issue is: you know, we are not going to solve the whole problem in in Glasgow. We can make a huge step forward, but we're going to need more after Glasgow. And we're going to need something to inject momentum. Uh, both from top down new targets in the future, but also bottom up real economy to to really give a powerful signal of, sort of irreversibility uh, in Glasgow. Brilliant. Uh, we've got quite a lot of questions that are getting uh, getting upvoted. Thanks for everybody for upvoting. That's very helpful on the role of developing countries. Um, uh, how big a voice will they get? Actually, uh, I think Castle was mentioning the sort of financing pledge to 2020, but what would we be looking for in terms of mobilization of resources at this COP as a good outcome? And a question from David Calver, which is at the top of the list, who's asking about the sort of global governance. Oh, well, that's actually a bit different. That's on, uh, I'll come on to that one later. So just some questions about actually, can the G77, uh, I think Jacob uh, mentioned the problems in uh, networking there uh, through virtual fora, not meeting face to face. You know, is this going to be a, basically a US, China, EU show with very little voice to developing countries? Joseph, uh, I'm not sure that, uh, that I would count Singapore as a developing country, but I think <laughs> for COP purposes, you, you are. So anyway, Joseph. <laughs> Um, not an easy question to answer, but I would just say that the developing countries would like to and would wish to be on the table and would want to have a say in all the outcomes. And I think uh, many developing countries, certainly in Asia, have started to 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 make uh, their impact felt. So China, as some has mentioned already, have come forward with a net zero target 2060. 
Japan has done, well, Japan is not really a developing country. ROK has put forward uh, a net zero target. South Africa has a net zero target as well. With among uh, ASEAN countries, a number have also put forward uh, uh, strong targets. Laos have announced uh, a 2050 uh, net zero target as well. Uh, other countries within ASEAN are also coming forward with their targets. So um, I joined uh, echo uh, Peter Betts' uh, assessment about the optimism that is, is that the momentum of climate action has improved and there is a race to zero currently. Uh, many countries as well as uh, institutions, financial or otherwise, even in developing countries are now also jumping on the bandwagon of net zero target. I think the challenge then is really to set and put forward the framework to ensure that those targets are really uh, real targets, that they can be measured, they can be verified, they can, and you can actually track the progress. Uh, setting targets is always easy. The difficult part, comes in implementing them and implementing them over subsequent governments over a period of time. Uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think uh, the long and short of it is developing countries want to have a say, they feel they have a role, but I think the key thing that many developing countries are asking is they need the support at this very critical time when they are facing many, many challenges. And the element of trust is very important because if the trust is not uh, established, uh, it's going to be difficult to have meaningful outcomes uh, at the coming COP and going ahead. Uh, one last point I would like to share is that this issue of uh, equity between uh, the rich and the poor, developed and developing, uh, is a critical issue. Uh, we see that in COVID, uh, as we speak about vaccination nationalism, um, um, the same issue applies back to, to, to climate change. I think many developing countries still feel that this is a problem uh, that they didn't cause, uh, but and they have other priorities like poverty, alleviation, and then now we have uh, the COVID challenges, and then coupled with debt, uh, rising debt burdens, I think there is all, this is the context that we are operating under. Uh, we need to address this in the best way possible, and I think support, fulfilling commitments uh, will be key in terms of restoring trust, uh, among developing countries and getting through to a meaningful agreement. Pete. Uh, just very briefly, I, I agree with much of what Joseph has said. So as you implied in your question, G77 is a very broad group of countries and with very different interests. But, you know, first of all, developing countries as defined are the bulk of emissions. So the idea that you can tackle this problem without developing countries is is for the birds. We we clearly need um, you know to work with developing countries, as Joseph said, finding you know increasingly helping countries to development parts that you know enable them to grow and address poverty and so on. But 
but whilst tackling their emissions. And we now have the, increasingly the means for them to do so. But also, as he and others on the panel said, you know, this can't be a successful COP if it's only about reducing emissions. It does have to be about, um, you know, building resilience and helping countries adapt. So we need a strong story. And I think that is understood uh, by, by the UK uh, presidency. I, I would also say if they want this to be seen to be success, they need developing country voices to say this was a success and the UK did their best to address these serious concerns. If they don't think it's a success, then that will be very damaging for the UK presidency. I think that's understood. So I think it, it will be uh, one where everyone is involved. So Pete, just, to, just a quick question. So Alex Sharma, as I mentioned, seems to be in Africa uh, at this week. Um, what sort of message will he or would you have advised him to be taking to the sort of governments of you know Egypt, Sub-Saharan Africa to, I mean, does he just have to offer sort of money or technical assistance or quite what, what gets them on board? Um, I, I don't uh, advise him, by the way, just um, so. Oh, I, uh, but, uh, if you were, if, you, if, if I, he was wise uh, enough to ask you back to advise him. First of all, I would say, listen, find out what's on their minds, find out what they're concerned about. Uh, yes, we do want all countries to produce NDCs. And so, you know, we, sorry, produce emission, emission reduction targets. Uh, but, you know, particularly in Africa, you know, it's important to, or in the poorer countries, to find, help those countries find routes to doing so, which are compatible with their economic development, poverty alleviation. I think that's entirely possible. So exploring a little bit what those countries are looking to do and, you know, how they, how they're getting there and what might help them to do so. Uh, assure, reassuring them that the UK is a, absolutely understands the importance of delivery of public finance targets and that we are, pre, we are pressing, we are going to walk the walk ourselves and we're going to press our partners in amongst other donors to, to raise their finance and also to um, increase the proportion that goes on adaptation and resilience. Carsten. Uh, first, I wanted to come back uh, on how to build trust. Uh, and I think I agree with what Joseph has said uh, on the issues, but uh, I also would highlight again what the UN SecGen made uh, public just uh, uh, one or two days ago, that we need to work virtually as we do it here. And for me, it's a big chance uh, uh, to to have broader participation because uh, even meetings of COPs being huge and even uh, accepting the huge need uh, uh, for for physical meetings, uh, that's the way we do it. But uh, uh, there seem to be some resistance for a year. We are just about to overcome it that we can work structured through virtual means now throughout the, the year to, uh, to really prepare for Glasgow. Uh, I think that is important. Uh, Joel, you mentioned it's important that uh, uh, Alok Sharma is not just visiting uh, uh, us, but uh, and he visits now developing countries. So uh, uh, if we cannot meet collectively uh, diplomacy through the COP president is even more important. Uh, with regard to the substantial topics, I would fully agree with, with Pete. Uh, it is important that we have uh, we deliver further and even more on public uh, finance commitments. But having said that, other, it's, it's important to build trust, but mainstreaming 
climate change into the broader finance agenda in the private sector and uh, uh, the World Bank and the IMF uh, uh, connecting climate change and uh, green development, I would call it, with uh, debt restructuring and uh, uh, just having dialogues, not imposing it, having dialogues and, and opening up new development op opportunities which are climate friendly both on building resilience and on mitigation is absolutely key. And I think we have uh, new opportunities uh, in these times of crises and we need to move forward on that one because uh, it's not just us negotiators. Uh, the mainstream processes which uh, we are undertaking here in the UK or in Europe, uh, for many years we, we have not been that strong on it. Uh, now we have understood it and I think that's uh, what we, we need to do, reach out even beyond the climate community. Well, talking of reaching out beyond the climate community, Mike Clark's asked a question, um, and that was raised at some earlier sessions, both by Amber Rudd and by Dieter Helm. Uh, he says the climate and nature crisis requires joined up solutions. We've got this big biodiversity COP that I think uh, people are saying the Chinese would want a success at, and I think people saw some potential, I'm very interested, I'm going to come to you first, Jakob, put you on warning here, uh, about the joining up of a success for the Chinese on biodiversity with a success uh, at the COP. Lots of people have said an ambitious Chinese 20, I think Carsten's ambitious 2030 NDC from China is clearly an important element in delivering there. So Jakob, what do you make of those linkages uh, coming in the same year? Uh, is there opportunities? I think there's an important EU-China summit, I think, coming up uh, sometime relatively soon. So is the EU going to lay the groundwork for this diplomatic triumph? Yeah, uh, thanks, for the, thanks for the question, Jill. I think the fact that we're having two COPs in the same year uh, and that China is playing a leadership role in both, one in hosting and the other in, in setting out this very ambitious target uh, for itself on, on uh, achieving net zero emissions in the climate change context, does, does bring together the, the two issues in, in a way that maybe we haven't seen since Rio, uh, when, when the, uh, back in 1992, the two conventions were, were launched at the same time. Um, they, they come together at least in two ways that I've heard. One is, uh, the parties to the, to the Convention on Biological Diversity have begun to look at the Paris Agreement as a kind of model of how multilateralism can work well. Um, and so there's a, there's a thinking that's been going on about what, what can the, the sort of the bottom-up articulation of ambitious targets by parties that, that you see in Paris towards a global goal, can that structure help bring new life to the Convention on Biological Diversity? Could it, for example, stimulate countries to set specific targets in terms of setting aside um, uh, areas for, for, for conservation and, uh, on land and, and the sea? So that's one conversation that's happening. The other is, is the, the substantive linking of the two agendas. As more and more countries commit to net zero in an economy-wide way, it requires us all to think more and more about the interactions between uh, sources and sinks, as we described in the Paris Agreement, uh, where we, we look at nature primarily in terms of its function as capturing and storing carbon. Um, as countries begin to do that, as they begin to look at, at, at land use and forestry as, as key to their net zero strategies, 
of course, this will require them to think about, well, um, if we are investing in increasing the, um, the cap carbon capture and storage function of nature, are we also taking into account the very important other services that, that nature provides in terms of maintaining um, rich systems of biological diversity, um, et cetera? So the, the, the move towards what we call in the climate context nature-based solutions is an area of substantive overlap between what the Climate Change Convention is trying to achieve by enhancing um, the, the, the role of sinks and what the Biodiversity Convention is trying to achieve, which is maintaining the level of, of, of biodiversity uh, and the biodiverse ecosystems on, on the planet. So I think both of those, those aspects will, will come together um, and uh, with, uh, with China um, hosting, they're going to be looking to us uh, to, to come up with uh, more substance on biodiversity in the same, at the same time that we're looking to them to come up with more substance on their, their climate change targets. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Pete, I think you mentioned the need for sort of robust governance, you know, that Glasgow couldn't be the end. There needed to be something, particularly to ensure that if people make sort of ambitious commitments, something happens. Lots of you have mentioned the need for transparency, um, you know, robust measurement frameworks, things like that. What would a sort of good governance framework to emerge from Glasgow, what would be the elements that we could test? If, if I was sitting outside and wanted to judge whether actually we put in place the necessary governance to make sure that the targets weren't just announced and everybody went away, uh, but were actually likely to be delivered, what would I be looking for? So I, I guess there are different aspects. So in terms of a, a system to oversee whether countries are delivering their targets, their 2030 targets, we, we've already got in Paris a pretty good system for for that it's got to be completed as T joseph was saying in 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 paris and his customer saying but it, it is a system that provides for countries to have inventories and to report on them and for some kind of multilateral review of what they're doing um so that's the first so we have that joseph was talking about some kind of system for um looking at how countries were on track to deliver their longer term goals and the, the, the Paris Paris does, doesn't really elaborate on that. And I, I'm not sure there's a negotiated agenda there, but I guess if there was an appetite, that is something that could be looked at, you know, whether there was scope to further elaborate systems for um, uh, keeping track and, and, and monitoring progress on those. I mean, clearly we will look at, we will all look at each other's NDCs and their 2030 targets and we will say, does that target look credible to get that country on track uh, for its for its long term goal? The, the other aspect which I was referring to was we've not just got to deliver what we've pledged. We're going to need to go further even after Glasgow, because you know we we I think we can get a very long way in Glasgow, but it probably you know we can it won't be everything we need to be to get us on track for you know 1.5 degrees. Mm. So we're going to need some kind of injection of momentum, maybe some kind of process to inject uh, more oomph into the top-down process to uh, to ramp ramp up targets in the future, and I think also more more oomph into the bottom-up real economy stuff. You know where the real economy is running ahead. Of the targets and you know is is um you know driving this sort of low carbon revolution so so i think there's a whole suite of things both yeah. to make sure targets are delivered but also to 
uh, to rent them up. Yeah, just wondered, um, Pete, you, I don't know whether you want to comment on this. A uh, question from Anonymous. Um, thanks, Anonymous. Uh, just about whether the UK's credibility has been a bit shocked by its uh, sanctioning this Cumbrian coal mine. I'm not sure whether this has got cut through to any of our uh, European or Singaporean colleagues, but Jim Hansen wrote that letter last week saying if the UK wanted to make success of the COP, what on earth was it doing approving a new coal mine? Did you look at, I mean, Alex Sharma's friends, yeah. I think, let it be known that he slightly winced at that. Were you wincing as well? I mean, I mean, it might be good to hear from others on that. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, overall, the UK's targets are extremely ambitious. You know, we, you know, if you look at the UK's overall reductions since uh, 1990 and its current target, they are very ambitious and they have been delivered. And I think that is, in the first instance, what countries what countries look at just as when they look at the EU, they don't look at every single policy. They look at, you know, what is the overall performance, which is very strong. Um, I, I I do think, you know, other, you know, I think issues like the ODA cut, um, mm. I think will probably resonate more uh, internationally than the coal policy will myself. But um, I'd be interested in, in others' views. Carsten, hopefully you're not too diplomatic to answer that question. <laughs> Do you, did this get any cuts through? Does this, was, did this get picked up at all in Germany, this coal decision? Uh, the coal decision, uh, I read about it, but it, it was not a big issue because uh, UK is uh, more or less uh, phasing out coal uh, just uh, ahead of, uh, of others. So that's not that big. I think uh, the issue Pete was mentioning, uh, uh, that's probably not in the tabloids uh, yet, but uh, uh, it is uh, in the international communities a significant cut uh, on ODA, uh, which is a basis uh, uh, for, for helping developing countries, uh, was an issue uh, uh, which was reported. And uh, I think that's a bigger credibility uh, issue. On coal, uh, at least within the EU, we see uh, high prices uh, in the UETS. Uh, so public statements uh, uh, on coal is one thing. Negotiated outcomes like we have in Germany is one thing. Uh, to open up that transition in a way which uh, is just uh, cannot be uh, just altered again. So, uh, but uh, economically, the age of coal is over, at least in, in Europe. And uh, for us, uh, you see that. Uh, the relation between coal, coal used to be uh, uh, the cheapest base load, and that's not happening in, in, the, in, in, the, in the German or European markets anymore. And therefore, uh, we can uh, squirrel on, on this and small bit of detail uh, on that, but uh, I think we have won that battle. I think uh, uh, with regard to gas uh, politics, uh, new investments uh, we need for what somebody called some people call bridging technologies. Uh, 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 what are really green investments to steer investment decisions uh, uh, in order to avoid stranded assets? That is the more difficult question. So uh, I would agree with Pete uh, uh, on the issue that the Cambria issue is uh, uh, probably not, not a nice thing, but it's just okay. something in so, the overall okay, direction. So so it's not completely torpedoed everything. So, uh, so that's good news for the business department. We can ask Kwasi Kwarteng about that at the session we've got with him tomorrow. Um, 
he apparently wasn't too wild about it either. But uh, I've got a question here about what countries do we expect to be difficult? We've talked about how the situation in the US has been transformed uh, with the election of President Biden, uh, Pete's unexpected progress in China, President Xi's announcement. Uh, we've got a suggestion that there are likely to be some difficult countries. Um, suggestions those might be Brazil, India, Russia, Australia. Just be interested. Jakob, where are you looking for uh, for perhaps the countries that might need a bit more uh, a bit more diplomatic effort to bring them to the table in a constructive way? Uh, thanks. Well, the, you know, the, we wouldn't have stuck in this process so long if there hadn't been challenges associated with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, different countries are difficult on different issues. I mean, if you take uh, each of those countries uh, one at a time, I mean, I think we, the, the UK presidency, the incoming uh, Biden administration as it's finding its feet, have, have all targeted um, major economies as the countries that we want to deliver net zero pledges and also to follow through with NDCs that are on a net zero pathway and long-term strategies that, that show how they're gonna get there. Um, and the, the, the odd countries out at the moment that are major emitters certainly include India uh, and, uh, and Brazil. Uh, and so I think there will be a lot of bilateral diplomatic effort to see whether or not these countries can be more specific about when they expect to reach net zero, which all Paris parties have committed to do, uh, and and how they in, intend uh, intend to get there. Um, the the issue that the couple have mentioned as as a challenging aspect of the technical negotiations. One of them is putting in place uh, more robust rules on international carbon markets, so that we have confidence that if countries decide to engage in those markets, um, they are accounting fully uh, for their trades. So no two countries are claiming the same emissions reductions. And then if we set up an international uh, mechanism for certifying offsets, that that mechanism is uh, is very robust. And, and here I think is where Brazil has been more of a challenge in, in, uh, than, than many other countries in holding out on um, what they see as a, a, a principles that were established under the Kyoto Protocol that, that, that countries, developing countries shouldn't be required to account in the same way as richer countries when they're engaging in, in carbon markets. And um, we've been, we and many other countries have been pushing back hard on that, but Brazil has made that a, a point of principle in the negotiation so far. And I think we, we really have to work hard to, to, to overcome uh, their concerns and, and, and get, them, get them on board. Uh, so those are at least two examples. Uh, you know, as you, as you move across different issues, you'll, you'll run into other kinds of challenges. Um, uh, some of the oil producing exporting countries uh, want um, to for the process to take into account uh, the, the what they call the negative impact of response measures. So the more that countries um, uh, wean themselves off fossil fuels, it, it causes challenges for oil exporting countries and, and they want the process to take those concerns into account uh, a bit more. Um, so, yeah, we, we can run through them all, but um, you know, we, we need to reach consensus. Our process is based on the principle of consensus. And uh, as people have been pointing out, we've never tried to reach consensus in a virtual context. Oh, and if we face that, I think that's going to be particularly challenging. How, how, do you, how does anyone who's chairing a virtual process uh, feel confident that, that everyone is agreeing with their, with their ruling? Um, but um, 
we're, we're, we're used to dealing with these issues uh, and, and we'll continue to work hard uh, to, to overcome them. Thanks. So just to add to the complexity, oh, Carsten, come, come in on that, come in on difficult countries. <laughs> Actually, yes. Uh, I think uh, what Jake said, uh, how difficult it is to build the trust for the negotiation agenda is one important issue. But uh, we have a good sequence here uh, and it's uh, the G7 summit uh, uh, sometime early summer and then uh, end of October, the G20 summit. And uh, if we are looking, uh, if we want to be uh, 1.5 compatible, uh, I think uh, it matters what big leaders are doing. And therefore, uh, we will have physical meetings involving leaders uh, and we can go through the whole list. Uh, and it's not just the two uh, Jacob uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, there are others, uh, including the ones you were, were mentioning. Uh, I look with interest uh, in whom the UK invited to be part of their G7 summit. That there is at least one uh, where I would like to see more ambition. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, one who used to be a G8 country is not uh, just uh, always uh, uh, online with that, uh, but also a country which has been really fundamental uh, uh, in multilateral negotiations and many accounts with a absolutely fantastic track record uh, a little bit south of, of the US uh, is not uh, uh, has not delivered uh, what uh, we are looking for. So uh, there are lots of transparency websites uh, uh, suggesting what what would be there and it's I think uh, an issue I wanted to be a little bit more blunt and direct uh, and uh, also using these other processes to build up the agenda uh, as we are not meeting that uh, regularly. That's a really interesting point because there was a question asking whether there were too many meetings this year where they're trying to do all these uh, G7s, G20, whatever, just meant we were going to have sort of summit overload. But it's quite interesting, Carsten, you see that as a, a positive, allowing you to build, build a pathway. I've got a very different question, which is uh, we talked a bit about the sort of, you know, uh, as mentioned earlier, about the sort of lack of a uh, lack of a sort of global um, civil society presence potentially in Glasgow. But we've got a question about uh, what would be your advice as negotiators to NGOs um, about what they can do to pressure governments to more ambition, even if they're not in the sort of huge, big sort of uh, uh, fora that we might expect to see at what we might term in normal COP. Anyone got any views? Joseph, do NGOs influence governments in Asia very much at all? Or is this a very sort of Euro-American sort of take on take on the world? Greta Thunberg cuts through in Asia or uh, do you have your own equivalents? My quick answer is it's different. <laughs> um, but my response is uh, at least for Singapore, where Singapore is concerned, I think uh, it is not so much about pressure, it's about working with us. And I think that is working with us, partnerships, cooperation. This would be my three buzzwords that I would use to engage uh, uh, civil society, use businesses, all stakeholders. And I think that is our uh, realization. Governments can't do it alone. We need to work and form partnerships. 
uh, if I may, I want to go back to the transparency issue. Yeah, you're right to transparency. Um, I think uh, we're, again, we're Singapore, a small country, Singapore is concerned. I think the first thing uh, we would like to see is maybe more countries ratifying the Paris Agreement. And I think there are some big countries uh, that haven't done so. And we would like, and if the, the UK presidency can use its wherewithal to, to encourage these countries to do so, I think that would be uh, one good achievement at COP. The second uh, issue is let's try to make the existing, Peter Betts mentioned uh, that we already have an existing transparency framework uh, under the Paris Agreement. Let's try to make sure that that works. And that means trying to get more countries to submit their NDCs because without targets, you can't measure, you, you can't, uh, measure them. Second, we need to get more countries to submit their reporting obligations. So uh, binding update reports, for example, is one crucial uh, 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 piece of the transparency pie that needs to be delivered, not at, at Glasgow, but many talks ago. And, and, and if you look through the list, you will find that not all countries have submitted by you know, their reports. And you need to do that because if you don't get into a system of getting used to collecting data, uh, getting all the agencies involved, reporting on them, compiling them, you don't know how to do better. Now, and, that, and my point is do not underestimate the challenge that many countries are facing. So even for Singapore, we're learning by doing with each biennial report, update report that we do. Now, if you can't uh, uh, crawl, uh, it's going to be difficult in 2024 when you have to run with new enhanced transparency frameworks. Um, so I would just say that uh, while there are many things that we need to do, let's get the basic right. Uh, let's make sure that uh, parties are fulfilling their existing transparency obligation because it becomes a virtuous uh, cycle. Uh, as you learn, as you do, you improve, you do better, and you move ahead. So, um, so that has been certainly Singapore's experience, and, and we are exist, uh, extending our support to other developing countries by sharing our experiences with them and hoping that more countries will come on board and, 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 and fulfill their reporting obligations uh, as well as their transparency obligations. And then the last thing we need to do, of course, is build the foundations for the ambition cycle, as that's mentioned. We need to, from COP26, make sure that we have the process in place where that wretched mechanism that Paris is, is, is of a bottom-up system is based, is effectively implemented so that countries can over time, as they learn through their reporting obligation and as they put forward new pledges every five years, can do better with each and subsequent uh, pledge. And that is actually an obligation under the Paris Agreement. We're supposed to submit progressively better NDCs and pledges with each each new round. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to say NGOs could do quite well to put pressure on their governments to make sure they deliver the commitments that they that they make and that they report on them transparently. As Joseph was saying, Pete, you want to come in? Uh, only, only just to build on what Joseph said and respond to your specific question on NGOs. So, 
still when I, I take the UK as an example, still when I see the UK debate, um, it's very, very often highly domestic. You know, so the COP presidency is a great opportunity to push the government on like hundreds of individual policies that are domestic, <laughs> you know, and that's fine. But actually this, you know, the, the role of the COP president is to is to lead a global conversation and to find solutions. So my, my message to NGOs would be, you know, a lot of the really big decisions for this COP will be taken in capitals before we get to the COP. So, you know, what is your NDC? How much how much finance if you're a donor country are you contributing know what you're asking for and put pressure on your government no doubt in a culturally sensitive way um, Joseph. <laughs> but domestic NGOs put, put pressure on each on each of your governments on the issues that relate to the COP when it comes to the COP there is a negotiated agenda when when I was the negotiator with Jake and others I think it was Carson's idea to, that I should be a, a, a negotiator which I'll never forgive him um, <laughs> um, you know, one of the issues we knew, we knew is who feels pressure in the room. Mm. So what NGOs say, what press say matters. And one of the challenges was for us was getting NGOs to ever be critical of developing countries, even when they were clearly, you know, the problem, not in, not collectively, but individually. Some do. Secondly, some of the issues that we really cared about, like transparency, were boring. They were boring and technical. So, you know, be prepared to get boring and technical and come behind the countries trying to drive, you know, ambitious technical solutions on the carbon markets or on transparency, because that will really help on who feels pressure in the room, accepting that we may be in a more virtual world and that may be different. We'll have to adjust. But that would be my advice. Get specific and get crunchy and granular. Okay, advice available from Pete Betts there to NGOs around the world. I'm <laughs> gonna, we're coming to the end. Well, actually, we've slightly exceeded our time, but I'm going to ask one last question, which is a question from Emily. We keep on hearing that this is a make or break COP. Uh, she's asked, is that is that really true? What happens if this doesn't deliver a good outcome? It's sort of supposed to be set fair, but what if this under delivers um is it rescuable uh let's go round our panel uh carsten uh success never guaranteed at these events as amber rudd was telling us about paris this morning so despite all the great prep work i think it's a, a huge challenge uh, for our economies our societies to decarbonize uh, it, it, three to four decades. So if Glasgow would fail, which I'm convinced it will not, uh, but if it would fail, uh, the speed of transformation needed to be even bigger because as all of us were saying, we have a huge window of opportunity with the most recent announcements. And uh, it is now to get the architecture working to, uh, to really trans Furring this really great narrative of net zero. People understand what net zero means. Zero emissions. Transferring it into our investment policies, our policies back home. And I think uh, on lots of the granular elements which could help us to be better through international cooperation need to be delivered by Glasgow. Uh, if Glasgow succeeds, it will be easier. 
if Glasgow fails, uh, it will be much more difficult, but not uh, uh, just the last day of the world as we know it. <laughs> well, that's, I suppose, I suppose, relatively, uh, relatively good news. I could throw in whether we should up the ante by agreeing a carbon border tax in the process. Maybe I'll come on to to Jacob or Jake, as the rest of you call him, uh, to ask that. But Joseph, uh, Joseph, you know, make or break COP. How important is this COP? Yeah, again, um, from the perspective of I, Singapore sits in the EOC, small island developing states, and I think from the small island developing states point of view, uh, if Glasgow fails, it will be a huge disappointment and it will really uh, have a very negative impact on many of the small island developing states. And I think I, I come back to the point of trust. And I think that again will impact, uh, have uh, a big impact on the trust among many small island developing states. That said, uh, Copenhagen, we recovered from Copenhagen. And I believe uh, we, as uh, uh, responsible members of the international community can and will recover if, and I share uh, Carson's view, uh, I don't think uh, Glasgow will be uh, uh, set for failure, uh, but uh, um, yes, I, I, I think we can come together, we can build better, uh, the momentum is there, uh, uh, the COP has been uh, unleashed uh, since the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. Uh, partnerships, businesses are moving. Um, they will, uh, as Pete Pat said, uh, businesses will put pressure, consumer preferences are changing, uh, civil society are putting pressure on governments. Uh, uh, back to Singapore, uh, we just had a, a parliamentary debate where members of parliament passed a motion urging the government to do more on climate action. And so I think the momentum is there. Uh, we just need to put the frameworks in place so that uh, emperors who are seen, who have no clothes, will be seen eventually <laughs> without <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to think too much about that one. That's a great, that's a great, uh, great place. Jake, should, I mean, should we be thinking for the sort of ambitious countries on things like carbon border adjustment taxes, sort of, you know, have a bit of stick as well as sort of carrot to tempt some countries to the table? It's been kicked around, I think, in the in the EU as a possible way to go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think successful bilateral diplomacy always involves uh, a series of uh, incentives and uh, and disincentives, um, and uh, the EU has been very publicly exploring the the need for a carbon border adjustment mechanism, not so much to coerce or to influence other countries, but to deal with the real challenge, the very real challenge, for any uh, economy that is committed to going to net zero is how do you deal with the extraterritorial emissions as you move towards net zero? So as you decarbonize your society, of course, um, your, your consumers are going to continue to seek uh, low cost, high quality uh, goods, some of which uh, uh, lead to, to, to rising emissions and are produced in other countries. So we have to deal with this challenge of, of carbon leakage. Um, as, as certain countries move into the lead, 
they are working on this this uh, this this problem uh, as as part of a set of domestic policies. But I think as more countries move into this net zero space, we're going to have to start talking about how do we deal uh, with uh, with the issue of um, of carbon leakage. And uh, the CBAM is uh, as we call it within the in, within the Commission will be a first effort to propose such a policy. Um, and we'll, we'll see how the, the rest of the international community reacts. Uh, but if they don't like the policy, it doesn't mean that we haven't addressed the issue, which is how do we manage the, the challenge of carbon leakage. Uh, on, the, on the issue of, of success and failure of COPs, I mean, I think that the most successful COPs are those in which progressive coalitions have set very high expectations and we haven't met them, um, but we've come close enough. Uh, and so I, I think we are setting high expectations for Glasgow. I don't think we'll meet all of them, but I do agree with others that uh, overall uh, Glasgow will be a success and we're already seeing uh, that success falling into place with uh, with some of the, the commitments that came in at the end of last year when Glasgow was supposed to have happened. I think those count towards Glasgow being, being a success. Uh, and then just one last point, I, I don't think that any COP is going to make or break um, this process anymore. Um, Paris stands for the proposition that we're in a constant effort to dynamically increase ambition uh, and no single cop will be a, 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 a point for judging whether or not we are, are on that right pathway. Um, the, the, the challenge is maintaining the momentum year to year rather than, than putting all the, uh, the expectations into a single event. Thanks. And, and Pete, final question. Has the UK sort of doing the language, the sort of Rishi Sunak language, whatever it takes to make a success of the COP? I mean, to try and run a successful COP in the year when you're also exiting the EU and still coping with the global, it's quite a big ask of, of any government. So has the UK put the right sort of resources, leadership in place? How much does the Prime Minister need to commit? You know, are the stars aligning for a successful outcome? So uh, I can see Carson laughing because you pitched this question at me. I thought I, I, you mostly you've thrown the difficult questions at Jake. Um, so I... <laughs> uh, that's our well, new relationship uh, with the EU, Pete. We have to do that. <laughs> I remember I, I, I was an official inside government when this uh, idea was first mooted that we should that we should uh, host the COP. And I, I, as a good official, I thought it was my job to check that ministers understood what they were doing <laughs> you know and you know, clearly I, I you know if you do this you know you will be expected to you know be Caesar's wife you, you're going to be expected to uh, sh show the highest possible standards on emission reductions and finance first secondly you are going to have to do this um, at a time when you're going to have quite a lot of other things on your plates viz Brexit <laughs> sadly um and thirdly um you know the the politics were uniquely bad because the cop was going to be you know the the us election presidential election was going to be in the middle of the cop anyway they decided to do it and um you know great that they have and um you know great opportunity for global britain and so on but it's certainly going to need you know you know continue to need uh, a lot of, of, of senior level resources, you know, top level engagement, prime minister, uh, chancellor, foreign secretary and so on. We're going to need climate embedded in the conversations we have with others about, um, you know, 
the debt conversation where China is key about green recovery that the Chancellor has, uh, about how we reform the multilateral the international financial institutions like the IMF and the, and, and the World Bank, which are the IMF is now building climate resilience into its into its country reviews. It's 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 you know it's it's it, where it assesses essentially their credit rating. So so you know I think it is going to need you know very sustained engagement, and it you know it is going to be tough in a context where you know there's so much go else going on. I didn't I didn't foresee COVID, so that's <laughs> <laughs> so I you know it's it certainly is going to need a, a lot of more continued continued effort. Right, well, we're going to leave it there. So more continued effort. We're going to take that up with Kwasi Kwarteng, who's joining us at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning to reflect on everything that came out today. He is, of course, the newly appointed Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Secretary, something that Amber Rudd suggested earlier should make him a holder of the fifth great office of state. Wonder how he'll react to that. So do join us then. Thank you so much to our phenomenal panel. Thank you all for staying with us. Sorry we ran over, but they were just too good to cut off at, uh, at 5.30. And thank you, of course, to our fantastic set of uh, sponsors, the Association of British Insurers, the Association for Project Management, Imperial College and Novo Nordisk.